So, if you remember last week, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, then a summary statement from verses 12 through 16. So, I'm going to pick up at verse 17. Um, you won't be surprised what you read in this, the second part of chapter 5. Uh, you've, you've been there before in the book of Acts. Uh, this is the second clash with the Jewish religious leaders there in the temple. Uh, the Christian community still in Jerusalem. The Christian community still basically either gathering in the temple or in private homes. So the second clash. Uh, the first clash, you may remember, was back at the beginning of chapter 4 uh, when Peter and John healed the lame man and created a disturbance. Uh, this one, this clash is going to involve perhaps uh, all, of the, all of the 12, all of the apostles. So 517 following. But the high priest, we already talked about that several times, uh, the official high priest, according to Rome, was Caiaphas. Uh, the uh, unofficial high priest, according to the Jewish community, was Annas. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. Um, remember the, who the Sadducees are. Remember the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, this really comes to bear quite a bit in the New Testament. Uh, you will miss some of the humor in this text here before us this morning if you don't remember who the Sadducees are. Uh, the Sadducees were the arch-conservatives who ran the temple. They're based in Jerusalem. Uh, they're um, benefiting greatly from Roman occupation. Uh, they're rather the aristocracy. Theologically, they only believe in the first five books of Moses, the Torah. Uh, therefore, they don't believe in resurrection. That comes to bear in this text. They don't believe in angels, which comes to bear in this text. And I think that may be part of the humor in this text. They do not believe in the existence of angels. Um, they believe that... Um, that, that, that everything is done according to just free will human interaction. Uh, very little about the sovereignty of God. So remember who the Sadducees are. Pharisees are different, very different. Jesus was perhaps a Pharisee. He hung out with the Pharisees. You see that in the New Testament Gospels. Um, he had a lot in, in common with the Pharisees. Not so much with the Sadducees. Pharisees were scattered throughout the land. They were um, teachers primarily, not priests, teachers primarily. Uh, they used the Torah. They used the prophets. They used the wisdom literature. In other words, they used what we call the Old Testament, all of it. So they were open to things like angels, resurrection, things that you see written about in the writings and uh, in the prophets that you don't see in the first five books of Moses. Uh, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are very different. Um, both groups would be part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish r ruling council uh, that 
kept court there in Jerusalem. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the 70s, what that means, uh, their supreme court, their ruling body of religious leaders there in Jerusalem was primarily made up of Sadducees. Uh, but you're going to see in this text there were some Pharisees on that ruling body also. So here's the high priest again, Caiaphas, official high priest, uh, according to the Romans. He's with his party of the Sadducees, and uh, they're all filled with jealousy. They are losing some control over some of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit and the early Christian community, they're doing their job well and boldly. Um, we're still within weeks of the crucifixion, probably still within just a few weeks of Pentecost. So the Jesus movement is growing in Jerusalem. It really hasn't begun to grow beyond Jerusalem much yet. It's still in Jerusalem. And uh, the leadership who are, are, are heavily vested in maintaining the status quo are filled with jealousy. Verse 18, so guess what? They arrested the apostles. Uh, again, this may be all of them, maybe all 12. Before you saw apostles, just Peter and John run into trouble, get arrested. Here they arrested the apostles, so it could be all, uh, more than just Peter and John, obviously, and put them in the public prison, put them in the public jail. So um, here we find the apostles again in prison. Here we find the apostles again in jail. Not surprised. Um, it won't be the last time you'll get to visit jail in the book of Acts. Um, if some of you have traveled with me, we have visited the jail uh, there in Caesarea Maritima where Herod would have had uh, Paul in prison. Some of you have been to Philippi with me. We have visited the ruins of the jail in Philippi, which you'll see in Acts 16. Uh, some of you perhaps have been to Rome with me, and you've uh, visited the Mamertine prison there on the edge of the Forum. Um, yeah, just don't lose sight of the fact these early Christians spent a whole lot of time in jail. That's why these sites of these jails are important to us. Here the apostles are, back in jail. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel. What do the Sadducees not believe in? During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Um, it's not going to be the last time you see an angel doing this in the book of Acts. Uh, so here's an angel who lets the apostles out. And in verse 20, the, angels, the angel gives a command gives a command to, to, the, to, the, to the apostles. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. If I would have been the apostles, I would have hoped that angel would have said to me, get out of Jerusalem. Uh, that's not what the angel says. And you're not surprised. Again, the book of Acts is about the early, early church's boldness in proclaiming Jesus, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I have the English Standard Version in front of me, and the word life is capitalized in my version. It may be in yours. Um, this life means Jesus. 
This life means Jesus. You also know, and more people know this than they know what's occurring here in this text, one of the earliest names for the Christian community. They were not called, you know, First Methodist Church of Jerusalem. One of the earliest names in the Christian, for the Christian community in the book of Acts is people of the way. You'll, you'll run across that. Here you see that perhaps we were also called people of the life. Uh, again, a memory that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, Jesus, and this should go without saying, Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus, is central to the Christian faith in the book of Acts, central to their preaching. No sermons about 12 ways to raise children who get a scholarship to college. No sermons like that in the early Christian community. Sermons about the way, and when they talked about the way, the life, they knew who they were speaking of. So here the angel says, go and stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. Life capitalized. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak. They're eager. They enter the temple at daybreak, and they begin to teach. This is a text, by the time we finish, you're going to see the difference. Acts is going to make sure you see the difference between teaching and preaching. They're two different things, and we'll say a little more about that before we get out of the text, because the word preaching, uh, the distinctive Christian word for preaching, will occur in the last verse uh, of this chapter. So here they are at daybreak. Uh, they are eager, but it's also a very busy time in the temple. People are showing up for morning prayer, for morning sacrifice there in the temple. So the apostles do, are doing exactly what, um, what the angel said. They've gone there to, to be able to, to keep preaching about this life, teaching about this life at this point. Um, began to teach. Now, here comes shift scene now from the temple to the, um, to, the, to the place where the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, the ruling council, met. Um, I think there's intended to be a little humor here. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, that's literally the Sanhedrin, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have these apostles brought before them. You know they're not there. They don't know they're not there. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. Wouldn't you have liked to have watched this? <laughs> so they returned and reported to the Sanhedrin. And, and they said, verse 23, we found the prison securely locked and the guards still standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. They don't believe in angels, the Sadducees, and also that part of that non-belief in angels and non-belief in resurrection is they didn't believe much in the supernatural. So uh, here they're finding themselves in the midst of a supernatural event, and they don't quite know what to do with this. Verse 24, now when the captain of the temple, that's captain of the temple police, and the chief priest, that's the chief priest with all the former chief priests, heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Yeah, they were perplexed. They were wondering what's going to happen 
This movement they can't seem to stop. They don't believe in supernatural, but they're beginning to get a hint that there may be something supernatural going on. And they're beginning to really, really get worried about what this is going to come to. So, look at verse 25. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Um, Again, I'd love to have seen the look on their face. Uh, Someone comes in and says, we know where the, the apostles are. They're back in the temple from which they had been arrested. They're back in the temple and they're teaching, not preaching. They're teaching the people. Verse 26, then the captain with his officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Um, I could just imagine the temple police going to the apostles saying, um, uh, please, sirs, would you come back with us? We don't know how you got out, but obviously you got out. And here you're back doing what we told you not to do. Um, so they, they politely bring them back. They, they're, they're afraid of the people. They don't want to be stoned to death by the people. The Jewish movement is uh, greatly increasing in these early days. So verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Uh, I suspect the apostles were smiling. The council looked a little perplexed. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Notice how hard the the high priest here uh, works to avoid saying Jesus. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet there you have filled Jerusalem. That's saying something about the effectiveness and fruitfulness of the witness of these early Christians. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Um, Bring this man's blood upon us as make us guilty of his death. Uh, There may be an ironic deeper meaning there. Bring this blood upon us as as in bring the work of Jesus Christ to prevail upon them. Anyway, so um, that's what the high priest said. But Peter and the apostles, notice Peter's leadership. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God. You can just stop right there. We must obey God rather than men. Now, in uh, Romans 13, in one of Peter's letters, it's clear in the New Testament Government is instituted by God, even if it's an emperor that's persecuting you. Government is instituted by God. We ought to be good citizens to the extent that we can be good citizens and obey God. But any time, any time, there's conflict between what the state wants, the leadership wants, and, and what God wants, it, there's, no, there's no decision to even be made. We must obey God rather than men. And then uh, Peter takes his chance to preach a little bit. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Again, he's talking to people who don't believe in resurrection. Raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Um, Your translation may 
help you out and just say cross. It literally is tree, hanging them on a tree. Let me tell you why that's important. The book of Deuteronomy, which is in the Torah, the five books the Sadducees would esteem, there is a passage that says, Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Um, and Paul has to argue, has to, defi- has to explain that uh, in some of his writings. Yes, you are right. The book of Deuteronomy, which is in the five books the Sadducees read, the book of Deuteronomy says, Cursed is the one who hangs upon a tree. Paul's going to explain later in his writings, he was cursed. The book of Deuteronomy is 100% right. He was cursed. He bore our curse for us. So when Peter here uses the word tree instead of cross, use the word tree, he's taken these Sadducees back uh, to Deuteronomy 21. Uh, so he knows what he's doing. He knows his audience. He knows who he's speaking to. Uh, you killed him by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand. Right hand, the ancient world is a place of authority, place of power, your right hand man. God exalted him at his right hand as leader. Your translation can say prince. Your translation can say author. Um, it's sort of a technical term. Prince, leader is probably best. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, prince, and savior. The word savior was used a great, great deal in the ancient world. They are always looking for people to save them from a multitude of things. Uh, There are coins minted in the first century that refer to Augustus Caesar as Savior, who brought about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So they knew the word Savior well in the ancient world, and uh, that's why the Christian community said this Jesus is the Savior. Uh, they barred it from the Roman world to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So he's telling these people they need to repent. He's telling these religious leaders they need to repent. Still to this day, our call for repentance, our rather negative attitude about human nature, and human nature's need to be redeemed instead of affirmed, gets us in hot water. And it happened right here. Here... Um, when Peter takes this opportunity to preach to the Sanhedrin, he, he calls all of Israel, including them, to uh, repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. They literally saw these things of which they speak with Jesus. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit just comes and goes on people for a specific task. In the New Testament era, Pentecost and post-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit takes up dwelling in anyone who invites Jesus into their lives. Again, I say it all the time. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who brought you the faith. It's the Holy Spirit who engrafted you onto the vine. It's the Holy Spirit who brought you into this community. It's the Holy Spirit who found your place in this community and led you to it. So as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. That's basic New Testament. Uh, then the question becomes, does the Holy Spirit have you? Or are you just, or are you just turning over the um, uh, religious department of your life to him, um, whom God has given to those who obey him, has given the Holy Spirit to all who obey him? Okay, you, you know what's going to come at this point, verse 33. 
those religious leaders, because they're so heavily invested in the system, they're so heavily invested in their leadership, they're not about to say, well, Peter, we think this all sounds good to us. We want to get on board with this new thing that God's doing here in Jerusalem. That's not what they're going to say. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged. Uh, They were cut to the quick, is what it literally says. And they wanted to kill them. Here comes Gamaliel, verse 34. Here is a practical piece of advice that can help you make decisions. I hope you know about the Gamaliel test. If you don't know about the Gamaliel test, you're getting ready to learn about the Gamaliel test. Then I encourage you to consider using the Gamaliel test from time to time in life. So when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee, there are Pharisees on the Sanhedrin, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held held in honor by all the people, stood up and starts to talk with them. We know Gamaliel was a famous, famous, famous rabbi in the first century. We know that Gamaliel is the grandson of the very famous rabbi Hillel. We also know that Gamaliel had a really famous student named what? Paul. That's right. Gamaliel was the tutor, the mentor, the teacher, uh, the rabbinic scholar that trained Paul, you're going to learn later in the book of Acts. So this Gamaliel is important for a lot of reasons. Um, Far as we can tell, not a Christ follower, but a a smart man. Uh, So Gamaliel, a Pharisee, and he, he, again, there's a big difference between Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, but they're both part of the the Sanhedrin. This this Pharisee stands up, and um, he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. That's, that's the apostles. He stands up and he says, put, 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 the, put the defendants out, out of our hearing for a little bit. And he said to them, and here comes what Gamaliel said to the Sanhedrin, and here's where you get the Gamaliel test. Men of Israel, take care. Take care, be careful what you're about to do with these men. And then a little history lesson from Gamaliel that the room would have known. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be a somebody, claiming to be somebody important. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed, and they came to absolutely nothing. There's no first church of Thutis running around anywhere out there. Um, so he was a big deal for a little while. He was a revolutionary, insurrectionist, probably someone who claimed to be Messiah. And he, um, he um, was significant for a little while, got some traction, had 400 followers. Then he was killed and the whole movement went away. We know about Thutis from the writings of Josephus. Uh, they may be talking about a different Thutis here, but... Josephus mentions a Thutis, who was a revolutionary, messianic character who wanted to help them get free from Rome. Then verse 37, another example from Gamaliel. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. This could very well be the census that took Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem. 
um, but rose up in the days of some census and drew away some of the people after him. Uh, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Uh, this Judas had a greater impact. Uh, his revolt led to, probably led, to what we call the rise of the zealots. That's another group among the Jews of this time who did not want to work with the Romans like the Sadducees, uh, who weren't just Bible teachers like the Pharisees. The zealots were the ones who tried to walk up behind uh, Roman officials and kill them in the crowd. The zealots were the ones who wanted to free them from the occupation of Rome and were willing to do it by, by violence. This Judas the Galilean might have been the, the rise of the movements of, of, of the zealots. Um, and remember, one of the apostles standing here in this crowd was a zealot originally. So uh, that's, that's Gamaliel's history test. Now, here comes sort of the Gamaliel, <clears throat> the Gamaliel test after the history lesson. Verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. If I'd have been in the room, I'd have probably encouraged Gamaliel to, have, to say it will fail eventually. Uh, some things of man last a while, like Nazism, fascism. There's all sorts of cults running around. So the guarantee is they will fail eventually. They may get a life of their own for a while. But what he's reminding them of is like with Thutis and like with Judas, new movements come and go. New movements come and go. If it is of man, it will fail. In other words, don't worry about it. Don't don't get don't overreact. Don't get too agitated. If if it's not of God, it, it will fail. If it is of man, it will fail. But look at verse 39. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now again, what's the Gamaliel test? The Gamaliel test is instead of panicking and freaking out, just wait and see. If it's not of God, probably not, not a lot will come of it. If it is of God, you don't want to be found fighting against it. Gamaliel test can be significant. Next time you are tempted to react, tempted to overreact, tempted to panic, uh, just think about our friend Gamaliel. He's telling the Sanhedrin to chill out, modern language. If it's not of God, it won't come to much. Uh, it'll, it'll fade away. Fads come and go. I've seen so many fads in 38 years that we thought were going to save the church that have come and gone. If it's not, if it's just of man, it, it will come and go. But if it is of God, the last thing you want to do is be found hindering or opposing what God is doing. So remember the Gamaliel test. I've used it a lot in life. Uh, the bishop I worked with when I was this superintendent um, used to always tell me how much he appreciated me being a non-anxious presence. I could walk into a room of 
200 people angry at the annual conference. And I remember one time, by the time I finished, I was at the piano and we were all gathered around singing and leaning on with everlasting arms. Um, you know, and every time he'd want, every time he'd talk about being a non-anxious presence, which by the way, I, I commend that to you also in life. Try to be a non-anxious presence. Panic should not be part of the Christian experience. But every time the bishop, Bishop Leland, used to talk about being a non-anxious presence, I would think, I'd think about two things. I'd think about Gamaliel, who I think a lot of. He trained Paul. I'm sure he probably told Paul this. Paul should have remembered this as he was on his way to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians. Evidently he didn't. But uh, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm trying to live as a non-anxious presence, I remember the Gamaliel test. And the other thing I used to think of when particularly Bishop Leland used to talk about me being a non-anxious presence, I always would say, go, go ask Tammy how I am at home. Um, but it's good to learn how to be a non-anxious presence. You know, some things God can handle. Some things, um, some things you can wait and see on. So be careful about reacting in, instead of acting. Sometimes we spend our life reacting to what's going on around us. Uh, be careful about reacting, and particularly overreacting. So you, you see the Gamaliel test here. I, I invite you to commit it to memory and find those times in life when, um, when it might be something you can use. Again, there's times it doesn't work. Uh, the Gamaliel test did not work with Nazi Germany. Uh, the Gamaliel test is, is sort of what Neville, Neville Chamberlain tried to do when he went and had a chat with Hitler and then came back and said, we got peace in our day. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't work, but before you, ha- before you head into other reactions, at least consider the Gamaliel test in your family, in your church, in your life. Um, yeah, panic should not be part of the Christian experience. Uh, because of our belief in who God is and the sovereignty of God. Uh, I know some people, I guess you do too, they're in a perpetual panic. Take them to a restaurant, put a menu in front of them, they panic. (laughs) You know, that should not be the Christian experience. Um, If it is, you need to think about who God is. You need to think about how easily you are intimidated by life. And again, if you know who you are in Christ, life should not be that intimidating. Anyway, they took his advice. These Sadducees uh, took the advice of a Pharisee at this point. And that benefited the, um, the apostles. Look at verse 40. And when, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Uh, your translation may say flogged them. Uh, flogging is a specific act in the New Testament. Um, according to Jewish law, you flogged somebody 39 times. The Apostle Paul was flogged eight different occasions. But when you were flogged, you were flogged 39 times, you see in the New Testament, because the law would, um, uh, would um, allow you to flog somebody 40 times. But what they figured out, thanks to people like the Pharisees, they said, we're just going to try to flog you 39 times because we might miss a count. And we don't want to break the law of God. 
So we flag, we'd flag you 39 times, make sure we didn't go to number 41 accidentally. So here they were, they were brought in, they were beaten, they were flogged. Same thing happened to Jesus, happens eight times to Paul in his ministry. Um, so, that, so they are beaten, and, and they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Some people don't learn real quickly, do they? Um, again, it's almost humorous, but you're meant to see the boldness of the apostles. It said, don't speak in the name of Jesus. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We're going to talk about some of this. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease uh, teaching and preaching. Here we see both teaching and preaching uh, that that the Christ is Jesus. So, um, yeah, it didn't work long. Next morning, they're back in the temple. They're back in the temple preaching and teaching Jesus. Notice that their response, look at verse 41, their response to being flogged is joy. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Um, remember Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, end of Beatitudes, uh, talks about rejoice when you're persecuted. Um, yeah, counted an honor when you get to suffer for Christ. Uh, counted an honor when your faith is real enough to offend somebody. Uh, so that's what these apostles are doing here. They leave rejoicing. I'm sure that freaked out the Sanhedrin too. They left the presence of the Sanhedrin council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to dishonor, to, to suffer dishonor for the name. Let me talk about for the name. Again, because all of you look very, very Gentile to me, you may miss what's, what's here in front of you. The name. In the Jewish world to this day, anytime the proper name of God occurs in the Hebrew Bible, the proper name of God, his name, like I'm Jeff, the proper name of God, the proper name of God in the Hebrew Bible is I am that I am. The Germans translated that Jehovah. Uh, then later, most of the academic world translated Yahweh. Because that Yahweh is a good translation of I am that I am. It's just the breath of life. I am that I am. So that's the proper name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. Now, you notice that the Jewish community does not say that ever. They don't ever say the, the, the personal name of God. The high priest one time a year in Bible time could say that on the Holy of Holies, on, on the Day of Atonement when they went into the Holy of Holies. That was the only time the personal name of God was mentioned. It's, it's too holy to be used, um, and we just tend to use it all the time. You know, people throw it around almost like as a as an exclamation. Um, so that's why in the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, sometimes Lord is spelled with all capital letters. Sometimes Lord is spelled capital L, but little O, little R, little D. When it's spelled with all capital letters, what you have there is the personal name of God. But out of deference and respect for the Jewish community, we don't put Yahweh or Jehovah. We put Lord all caps. Because in the Jewish community, anytime they're reading the scripture and they come across the personal name of God, they either, they don't say it, they will say Adonai, which is just the word Lord. That's why we replace the personal name of God with the word Lord 
in the Hebrew Bible, but we do it in all, all caps so you know what you're looking at. Um, but in the, in the very Orthodox Jewish community today, all over the Jewish world, in some of their translations of the Hebrew Bible, they don't even put the word Adonai or Lord. When they see the personal name of God, they just say Hashem. And if you go to Jerusalem or Israel or Crown Heights, Brooklyn, you may hear Jewish folks on the street talking about Hashem, 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 Hashem. And you want to wonder who in the world is Hashem. Hashem is Hebrew for, guess what? The name. Literally, the name. They don't, they don't want to get any closer to the personal name of God than just saying the name. You know, that name, the name. Hashem, Hashem. They will bless you. In, in the, they will bless you. May, may Hashem bless you. So here in the text, when it says that these Jews here in Jerusalem are suffering dishonor for the name Hashem, this is this is a statement of the divinity of Jesus. One of the many, many that you have in the New Testament that if you're a Gentile, you probably just run right over. Because, you know, the name, the name, the phrase, the name, doesn't mean much to you. But in the Hebrew world, the name, Hashem, means the big one. So here they, um, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Hashem, the name. Verse 42, another one of these summary statements. And every day... Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. Shows you the effectiveness of the Sanhedrin. Shows you how afraid of the Sanhedrin they were. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah is Jesus or Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. So, um, yeah, they didn't listen to the Sanhedrin. They were back out teaching and preaching that this Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, the one that God sent. Um, and here you have for the first time a word that's really important to the Christian community. You see they did not cease teaching and preaching. The word preaching, uh, an important word. Preaching and teaching are two very different things. Um, most of the people that do what I do, we're very clear when I'm, I'm very clear when I'm in, in a teaching setting. I'm very t- clear when I'm in a preaching setting. If you just show up for preaching settings, but don't participate in any teaching, your, your, your spiritual growth is going to be stunted. In the context of worship, that's preaching. And we're going to find it in a moment. In the context of worship, that's preaching. It's not teaching. Now, again, in the Jewish world, they have rabbis. They are really, really big about teaching, teaching the Hebrew Bible, teaching the language. They're really, really big about teaching. Now, a rabbi in a synagogue service will preach a sermon. And again, a sermon is different from teaching. Um, So I think you know what teaching is. Teaching is something aimed at primarily believers to help them understand the faith better. You know, I, I would about guarantee you the bulk of the people sitting in pews on Sunday morning 
They don't know why. They may have never noticed when they read the Old Testament. Sometimes Lord is in all capital letters. Sometimes Lord is capital L, little O, little R, little D. Uh, just out of curiosity, go back and look at the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. See which Lord they're talking about right there. Uh, most people sitting in pew on Sunday morning never even noticed that Lord spelt two different ways or using two different types of letters in the Old Testament. If they've even noticed that, they probably don't know why. Now, again, you know, whether or not you know that will not keep you out of heaven. But, you know, I think it's important in the Christian community to tell people, you know, please, please, please don't over-spiritualize your ignorance. Um, some parts of the church spiritualize their ignorance. Teaching and preaching are important. You need to know this faith. Um, that's why, you know, um, in the Jewish world and then the beginning of the Christian world there among the Jewish world, teaching was really important. They day by day were teaching and preaching. Now, the word preaching, you're being introduced here to it. It's going to occur 15 more times in the book of Acts. So what is preaching? Preaching, um, in, the, in the, the Greek, the word is um, the act of preaching is euangelion. Uh, from which you work, from which you get the evangelical uh, evangelism. By the way, evangelical is a great, great word. It's a great, great word. You know, the the, the media who who loves to put on public display their religious ignorance. They just always throw all Christians of any stripe in 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 a in a group together, and they even like with evangelical. Um, they, they certainly don't know the difference between evangelical, charismatic, fundamentalist, the list goes on. You know, so please be careful of the news media. Uh, evangelical around the world simply means one thing. If you go to Europe, there's evangelical churches everywhere. Uh, if When I go to Greece, some of you are going to Greece with me next April, you've got Greek Orthodox and evangelicals. Evangelical basically means you're not Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox. Evangelical basically means you're Protestant. Evangelical technically means, because the word euangelion means good news, which is translated from the old Middle English gospel. So evangelical means you focus on the good news, you focus on the gospel. The Book of Discipline, just talking to the Methodists in the room, the Book of Discipline says over and over and over again, we are an evangelical denomination. Please don't let the culture around you um, tarnish that label or take it back. Take it back. During the Chris Christmas season, I'm always trying to rehabilitate St. Nicholas, one of my heroes in Christian tradition. You know, rehabilitate these things that belong to us and refuse to let the culture around us take things that are sacred and significant and important to us and, and tarnish them with their ignorance. Anyway, euangelion comes from the um, Greek word that means to proclaim. So when you got, which is preaching. So when, when you see the word preaching or proclaiming, they're the same word, is based on the Greek word euangelion, from which we get evangelical, evangel, good news, gospel. So it's a focus on the gospel. So again, teaching and preaching are different. Uh, teaching teaches you, teaches you to understand the faith. Preaching is introducing you to him. 
preaching is proclaiming the good news. Uh, we Methodists used to um, license preachers, and when we licensed preachers, we called them exhorters. We were a little nervous about them teaching because a lot of them didn't have a lot of education, but they could exhort. They could stand in a pulpit and tell you about Jesus, tell you how much you needed Jesus, point you to Jesus. Uh, that's preaching. Uh, the church needs to be doing both. We need to be putting ourselves under both. Uh, teaching is is really more aimed at those who believe. They just need to understand the riches of their faith. Preaching, exhorting, proclaiming is um, it, it's like what Peter's doing when he's looking at the Sanhedrin and saying, um, you need to know Jesus. You need to repent and come to Jesus. That's preaching. That's proclaiming. That's focusing on the evangel, evangelical evangelism. Um, they're both significant. They're both important parts of the Christian community. You know, I preach when I, when I, when I, when I invite you to Jesus, when I proclaim who Jesus is, when I, try, when I try to draw you to Jesus. That's preaching. But then when I tell you what the name Jesus means, Yeshua, that's teaching. When I, when I tell you how Isaiah painted the picture of Jesus, that's teaching. Um, they're different. Uh, notice the early Christian community was committed to both. Wish we get all of our churches committed to both. Worship is not enough. In the context of worship, uh, more and more now, more and more in this post-Christian culture, uh, in the context of worship, teaching is taking a bigger place uh, because chances uh, chances are in this culture, the people gathered in front of you on a Sunday morning know very little about their faith. You know, they may know Sermon on the Mount. You know, they may know 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 23rd Psalms way up there, but they don't know a lot about their faith. So, so more and more in this culture, as a post-Christian culture, uh, more and more teaching is happening in um in, in, in pulpits on Sunday morning, which is why, if you look at the mega churches, this scares Methodists to death. If you look at the mega churches, the average sermon is 40, 45 minutes long. You look at preaching somewhere like Elevation, it's about 40 minutes. Because you got to preach and teach. Because that's the only time you're getting these people. It's the only time you're getting these people. Um, so preaching and teaching is happening more and more in, in worship settings. But particularly in this post-Christian culture where it's only preaching, no teaching, um, yeah, I, we're, we're losing a lot of the riches of our faith. So preaching and teaching are both important. You see the apostles here doing, doing both. So make sure that you um, submit yourself to both because they're, 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 they're important. So, Chapter six, where we'll be at next week before we break for Christmas, we see it. Some we see the apostles dealing with an administrative headache. This is just a strangely comforting chapter to me. When the apostles already in chapter six are dealing with an administrative headache. Anyway, thanks for coming out. There's probably some more food back there. Make sure you make some new friends while you're here, and uh, let's let's pray together.